The 71st Tony Awards are this Sunday, and New York's all a flutter. In a year that snubbed Amelie and Anastasia, you might be tempted to think our recent trend of staging Hollywood's dreams from a decade ago is fading. It could be, but I, I doubt it. Still, the relationship between stage adaptations and their silver screen sources isn't always sorted. So, here are seven musicals you didn't know were remakes of non-musical movies. And James Bond. Beauty and the Beast. This year's spin on the classic tale was a box office smash. Actually, it's the 10th highest grossing film humanity's ever made. But did you know that both this version and the Tony-winning stage musical are directly based on an animated version from 1991? A film that was the first cartoon to be nominated for Best Picture? Y yes of course you did. I'm screwing with you. It's the 1946 Belle Lebette that I'm getting at. Made by French playwright-turned-primordial-auteur Jean Cocteau, it's a tradition of quality picture, made in the odd years following the fall of Nazi-occupied France. Belle et Lebet uh, follows much the same structure as Walt's versions. There's no singing, and Gaston's a bit more interesting, but all in all, it's Belle up there on the actually silver screen. Cocteau is a master of practical effects, however, and it's this more than perhaps anything else that makes his version stunning. In our recent interview with Tony nominee Charles Bush, he cited the 2017 version as an example of how, with the exponential evolution of CGI tech, our movies seem increasingly realistic and thus farther and farther from their theatrical roots, even the fairy stories. Cocteau's version has gotten no danger of that. It's all theater, all imagination, all magic. And just as wonderful as the 90s telling we all still think of every time we wander into a bookstore with a baguette. There's also the 2014 rendition starring Spectre Bond girl Leah Seydoux. She's so much more than that, but we all saw that one. It's closer to Cocteau's than Disney, but, but whatever. You can watch it on Filmstruck, the Cocteau version. Uh, Sweet Charity. Uh, the 1969 Bob Fosse picture was a thing most people around your parents' Thanksgiving dinner table have seen, even, even if you have it. The stage musical that it's based on is something you knew about, though. Seen this season, in fact, off-Broadway from the new group, it, it won a Tony once, too. That said, those are both based on Federico Fellini's 1957 Oscar winner, The Knights of Cabiria. This one's already made our list of 12 movies millennials would love but have never seen, and is just as relevant here. The story of a hooker with a heart of gold who's got more innocence and a hope in her little finger than any Disney princess. Fosse's version made her a Times Square dance hall girl, and as you can imagine, there's not much singing in the original. Fellini's follows the heart-achingly optimistic and overly trusting Cabiria as she moves through the seediest parts of post-war Rome, and is continually duped and robbed by would-be boyfriends, until at last, she's left weeping on a cliff, her fiancé having just run off with all she had in the world. Then, in what actually might be my favorite scene in, like, all of film, she stands up and begins to walk down a forest road, still crying. Suddenly, out of the trees, a mass of young party-goers emerge with instruments and alcohol and joy. Despair turns to hope, just as tearfully, and the credits roll. In a wonderful twist of history, Fellini's original stars his wife Julietta Messina, and Fosse stars his missus Gwen Verdon. I dare you not to be all about Cabiria. You can also grab that on Filmstruck. Uh, Casino Royale 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so you may know about this. That in classic 60s James Bond fashion, the rights were a mess. 
Based on Ian Fleming's very first Bond novel, it's been filmed three times. The one you're thinking of, and another version with Woody Allen. Allen's is, of course, a straight-up comedy. Think of it as the Weird Al Yankovic, Wayne Brothers version of Bond. It's way better, way funnier, way more 60s, and far more culturally relevant than I ever hoped. It even turns 50 this year. Watch it. As to the third one, the very first Bond ever put on film was a CBS anthology show in the vein of The Twilight Zone. They did it before anyone else. And 007's a damn Yankee. True, Bond hasn't hit the Great White Way. Yet. A Bond musical has been in development since 2015, however, so consider this a bit of forewarning. Hairspray. You saw it with Travolta, you saw it live with Martin Short, you saw it sweep the Tonys in 2003, but the incredible camp hit that could began life as something perhaps even stranger. A John Waters movie. If you don't know who John Waters is, but do live in New York, he's the reason the legendary Strand bookstore paints the words, if you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them, on every surface. A bit of an American Pedro Almodovar meets Roger Corman, Waters' work is utterly unique. His Hairspray is not a musical, but it is certainly more perfectly off-putting. And co-stars Ben Stiller's dad, Jerry, and Divine. It's also the reason you've ever heard of Ricky Lake. Much the same story as the big musical, Tracy Turnblatt's a pleasantly plump teenager in 60s Baltimore who fights for local TV dance show stardom while combating racism and helping her man-played mom get woke to the 60s. A cult and queer film touchstone you won't long for James Marsden once, though I did love his Corny Collins. Waters' next film, Crybaby, starring Johnny Depp, also became a Tony-nominated musical in the early 2000s, and to my mind, is the grease that we deserved. Little Shop of Horrors. The movie musical of Little Shops, a wonderful bit of camp, starring Rick Moranis of Ghostbusters fame, and directed by Frank Yoda slash Big Bird slash Miss Piggy slash Everybody Ever, Oz. The film's based on an off-Broadway musical. The Tony-nominated Broadway version came later. But before that, it was a black-and-white 1960 B-movie by master of the genre, the actual Roger Corman, notably featuring a pre-famed Jack Nicholson as a deranged dental patient. The plot lines stick pretty close together. All of them follow Skid Row florist Seymour Krelborn, who comes upon a talking alien plant, immortalized by Frank Oz's puppet, the Audrey II named after Krelborn's overly hot and overly earnest love, has the power to bring Krelborn anything he wants, as long as he supplies the plant with human blood. Shot in two days for $28,000, it, it couldn't be more Corman. There are deranged dentists, busty brunettes, and a lot of Jewish in-jokes. It's a delight. With perhaps a little more focus on the plant's alien background than in subsequent versions, the original's a jam of camp foe horror. Seriously, guys, check it. It's on Amazon. You've got mail. She loves me. In the good old summertime, the shop around the corner, Parfumery. Uh, this one had a lot of renditions. Tony winner She Loves Me was back up again last season, doing well, but never as well as its most famous offspring, You've Got Mail. Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks, AOL, what, what, what could be better? Nora Ephron, who I am falling for all over again in Good Girls Revolt on Amazon, 
wrote and directed this rom-com. It's one of those 90s movies that only gets better with time. As I write this, I'm sitting at the corner of like five points on the You've Got Mail walking tour that for some reason I have ventured on. It's a modern classic, I, I, I guess. The play that both You've Got Mail and She Loves Me is based on isn't quite a modern classic, mostly because it, it's not modern. Miklos Laszlo's Parfumery hit the Budapest theater scene in 1937 and tells the story of the employees of a small Budapest gift shop, notably a set of bickering co-workers who don't realize they're pen pals. By 1940, it was an Ernst Lubitsch picture by the name The Shop Around the Corner. Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart star as the unsuspecting lovers this time in a small leather shop. By the end of that decade, it was In the Good Old Summertime, a musical vehicle for Judy Garland, this time set in Chicago. By 63, it hit Broadway as she loved me, then revived again last year and earned the distinction of being the first Broadway show ever to be live-streamed. And that's how we got the 1998 ode to America Online. Most of those, definitely the shop around the corner, are on Amazon, too. Sweeney Todd slash Phantom of the Opera. Everybody knows that Sweeney Todd and Phantom of the Opera were Broadway smashes before they were blockbusters starring Johnny Depp and Gerard Butler, respectively. Many of you know they were penned by rival musical theater kingpin Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber. What's less easy to know is that both are based on much older Victorian stories and thus rather older pre-war movies. I saw Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd the night it opened in my hometown. Before they ran it, an usher came into the theater to announce that, quote, this is a musical. There will be singing. People walked out at that. I suppose that's why they had him say it. And if you somehow are one of those people, c come on, man. Phantom was first put on celluloid in 1925 as a silent picture of the same name, starring Lon Chaney as the Phantom, beneath a makeup of his own design. Sweeney Todd got to the big screen in 1936 under the name The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. The Phantom's tragedy seems pretty much set in stone and will be familiar to anyone who knows any version. Still, the silent film is luscious. The score makes every moment magic, the editing trims any possibility of drag, and the chandelier's still baller. However, it took Sondheim's gold touch and Hugh Willer's libretto to make Todd sympathetic. In the original, he's a near-straight-up monster, played by a man born for the role, Todd Slaughter, He's charming and clever and funny, but when we meet him, he's been at his murderer's game for some time, simply in it for the money. Joanna is not his daughter, and he himself fulfills the Judge Turpin creep function of trying to hit that. But Toby's adorable, and Mrs. Lovett's right there. Even the Beatle makes an appearance. It's not great, the camera doesn't move much, plot points are breezed past, but the performances are good. Oddly, we never once see Todd cut a throat. He talks a lot about throats, and I suppose we're to assume it all happens off-camera. His primary method, though, seems to be tipping people out of his mechanized chair so that they hit their heads in the cellar below. Similarly, it's never once said that Mrs. Lovett bakes the bodies into pies. There's a bit of mystery about how she disposes of them, and some comic close-ups of pies, but nothing explicit. It's in the fabric of the film, though. The story was so well known that I, I guess the team felt it didn't need to say it outright, which kind of makes it creepier. Some things are set in stone, though. Toby, the chair, the sailors, Todd's strange hairdo. In the design more than 
maybe anything. You can see Sondheim's production drawing directly from the film. Both are pretty much worthwhile bits of early 20th century theatrical studio horror, though. Phantom's much better. Neither are musicals. There was also the 1997 TV movie of, of Sweeney Todd starring Ben Kingsley, according to Google. Uh, check it on Amazon if their YouTube links aren't working. So, rewatch the one you know tonight, stream the soundtrack to the musical on the way to get some wine tomorrow, and watch some faces that were probably dead long before you were born. That's the magic of the movies. <laughs> And you'll dazzle all your theater friends with your film knowledge at their Tony party this Sunday.